Hello, powerful people. It's Seth Harris, a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change at Northeastern University. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog. Really delighted to have you here. If it's your first time, boy, oh boy, did you pick the right day to start engaging with the Power at Work blog because we have the first of our Labor Day blogcasts for you, and it's a doozy. We've got a very, very important figure in labor law uh, with us today. Jennifer Abruzzo is the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. We have an exclusive interview with her coming up right after this uh, introduction. Um, Jennifer is uh, a very, very important leader on the issues surrounding worker power. She's arguably the most important leader on those issues. Uh, because she prosecutes labor law violations. She oversees the process of NLRB union representation elections in the private sector. Um, but she also helps to shape the law uh, that governs worker organizing and the protection of workers' rights to engage in concerted activity and their right to engage in collective bargaining. Uh, she's extremely important. I think she gets a lot of the credit for uh, workers feeling that they have a government agency that's watching their back. When they take the risky step of organizing or seeking to bargain with their employer, push their employer to improve the quality of their lives, they know they've got uh, an advocate uh, in the general counsel seat at the National Labor Relations Board. So you're going to hear from her today, and uh, I'm telling you, it's uh, you're going to learn a lot. I think you're going to get a deeper understanding of her both as a human being and as a lawyer and as a government employee. Jennifer has had more than a 20-year career with the National Labor Relations Board. She started at the really junior levels right out of law school, uh, and she committed herself to climbing the ladder at the board and serving workers along the way. She also had a stint during the Trump administration uh, with the Communications Workers of America and their general counsel's office, um, had served previously as the Deputy General Counsel of the NLRB and the Acting General Counsel for a short time at the NLRB, and then President Biden nominated her to be the General Counsel. Uh, she won confirmation in the Senate by a vote of 51 to 50. It took Vice President Harris voting in favor of uh, Jennifer Brusso to put her in that General Counsel seat. So thank you very much to Vice President Harris and to the President for, for nominating uh, Jennifer Abruzzo because she's done just a terrific job. Um, let me warn you that there are some things you're not going to hear uh, in this uh, broadcast with Jennifer Abruzzo. One, you're not going to hear her talk about a brand new case that the board decided just, uh, what is it, four days ago. We're recording this on Tuesday, August 29th. The board issued a decision in Semex Construction Materials Pacific on uh, Friday the 25th, I think it was, uh, and the board um, changed the law in a very, very important way. The board uh, held that uh, when a union goes to an employer and has authorization cards from a majority of the employees in a proper bargaining unit, meaning in a workplace, a majority of the employees in that workplace have signed authorization cards saying, I want this union to represent me. And the union collects that majority of cards, gives it to the employer, and says, we want you to recognize us, that the employer can refuse to recognize the union, but it must petition for an election if it does that. If not, the union will be certified by the National Labor Relations Board. Now, if the employer asks for an election, petitions the board for an election, and this is a very important change. If the employer commits an unfair labor practice that would make that election unfair or has made that election unfair, well, then the election will be set aside and the union must be recognized by the employer. The, the NLRB will issue an order for the employer to bargain with that union. That is a big change in the law. But let me also say, it's not the change that all worker advocates wanted. Some folks were pushing for a return to what's known as the Joy Silk Doctrine. The Joy Silk Doctrine said that when a union comes forward with a majority of authorization cards uh, to the employer, the employer must recognize the union unless the employer has a, a good faith doubt 
that the majority for the union actually exists. The board, uh, this board did not go that far in its decision in Semex construction. Instead, it said the employer can go ahead and petition for an election, but then the employer has to obey the law. So this is a very important decision that is going to put pressure on employers to not violate the law when union organizing campaigns are underway and a petition has been filed with the board. Because if they do, they risk the union just outright winning recognition. And so this is finally a meaningful disincentive for employers to break the law. Now, you're not going to hear Jennifer talk about that case by name. She refers to it. She alludes to it. She references it. She offers her view on it subtly. Uh, but she doesn't want to be seen as criticizing or commenting on the board's work. And she didn't do that during this, this interview. Uh, there's some things she wants them to do that they haven't done yet. She mentions one or two of those. Um, but she was very politic about her dealings with the board. You got to be that way, right? She's an advocate in front of the board, just like some others. Um, but the Semex, uh, uh, Semex construction decision is a decision that Jennifer and her staff at the general counsel's office and the regional staff at the NLRB brought to the board. And it's one of dozens of precedents that Jennifer is seeking to overturn to make the statute more effective in defending workers' right to organize and workers' right to bargain collectively and workers' right to engage in protected, concerted activity. So you're going to hear Jennifer talk about all that. Uh, but first, uh, let me just say I want to extend a special thanks to our friends at, at Levy Ratner. Uh, this podcast is made possible by the generous support of Levy Ratner, experienced labor and employment lawyers uh, uh, serving in New York and New Jersey. They provide counsel to labor unions, to benefits plans, and to employees, and they advance the rights of everyone who works, and they've done that for more than 50 years. Let me just say, Levy Ratner, a great friend of the Power at Work blog, we're delighted to have them sponsoring this Labor Day blogcast. We have more Labor Day blogcasts coming. we got some big ones coming. So you come right back here after you watch this interview with Jennifer Booser. Come back to the Power at Work blog and subscribe to the blog so that we can keep you updated on all the fantastic content that is coming. You can also follow us on social media, on Twitter, at Power at Work blog, on Instagram, at Power at Work blog, on LinkedIn, go to the follow the Power at Work page, on threads, at Power at Work blog, on Facebook, you can follow our page. Connect with us, follow us. We will keep you updated about some more great Labor Day blogcasts that are coming your way, more great content that's coming your way. But right now, here is the first of our Labor Day broadcasts with NLRB General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo. Well, so Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the Power at Work blog. You're just the perfect guest to take our our fans and viewers into Labor Day weekend. Do you have big Labor Day weekend plans? I don't really. I, I actually am going to uh, spend a little bit of time with some neighbors over the weekend barbecue. Great. Other than I, that, think, I think all of America is asking, what does the NLRB general counsel do for Labor Day? But that's where they're going to have to guess what you're going to be doing with your neighbors. So let me I want to start sort of a, a little bit personally um, and, and, and about you. I'm going to start by talking about me, but I'm also going to talk about you. So when I was the deputy secretary of labor, I regularly said to the department staff that the mission of that department was the cause of my life. And I get the sense from the time that you and I have spent together over the years that the same thing is true for you about the NLRB, that the mission of the NLRB is the cause of your life. Now, would you say that's a fair description of your relationship with the agency? And if I have it right, where did that come from? Is it family? Is it personal experience? What, how did you end up sort of bonded to this government agency? Yeah, so so yes, you're right. Um, but you know, so I'll just give you obviously a little bit of perspective about family and experiences. But you know, I was, as you know, Seth, um, I was raised in a blue collar 
neighborhood in Queens, New York. Uh, both of my parents were union members. I certainly saw how their negotiated wages and benefits helped improve our lives. And others in my neighborhood were not as fortunate. So it was really important to me that I did all I could to advance equity for others in my community uh, and, and more broadly. But I wasn't sure what role that would take or how I could be most effective in doing that. But then kind of some personal events kind of uh, shaped my course. Um, as a divorced single mom, um, I felt that I uh, a, a professional career would ensure that I could independently provide uh, financial security for me and my son. And so I, I worked during the day in a human resource department of an international investment bank, and I went to law school at night. And while employment discrimination was offered at night, labor law was not. <laughs> so, so I kind of created an opportunity for myself. Um, I asked the only labor law professor that taught at that school um, if I could clerk for him. And he agreed. And then about a year after I graduated, he contacted me, um, told me that he had recommended me for a position with the NLRB because the Miami office had solicited him, told me that I had to take it if it was offered, which I did. Uh, and, you know, basically the rest is history. So I started in Miami at the NLRB in January of 1995. I, I left during the Trump years and worked for CWA. Now I'm back as their general counsel. And um, it's just been a great a great ride. I mean, it's an awesome agency. It's it, with an awesome responsibility to enforce the only federal pro worker statute in the country that deals with labor law, not employment law, labor law. Uh, and as there's no private right of action where a worker can go directly into court, you know, we feel this tremendous responsibility to get it right each and every time. So I'm, I'm, you know, I've been with the agency now over 25 years. I am thrilled to be working with such talented board agents each and every day. It is my passion where we are all committed to the mission for sure. Yeah. And and yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand that about labor law is that you are America's labor law prosecutor and you're the one who has to bring all the complaints, all the claims Workers can't do it on their own, at least in that forum. There are other laws and there are other forums, but not for labor law and not for the National Labor Relations Act. So that's such an important point. I'm, I'm, I was eager to hear that that personal story. So, so you become something of a folk hero to organizers and union advocates and, and workers and particularly labor lawyers and all those people who really care about building worker power. And there have been more than a few stories written in which labor leaders, some named, some unnamed, have said that you are the main reason that President Biden can honestly describe himself as the most pro-union president in history. How do you react to people talking about you in that way? I mean, that's lovely that they say that. I mean, I think, as you know, when you were part of it as well, there are so many of us in the government that are committed to our missions. And, you know, they all, at least the worker protection agencies, DOL, for example, EEOC, myself, you know, there's so much interplay between our statutes and that we're all about helping workers. Now, granted, yes, you know, my statute is is about promoting collective bargaining and collective action um, between uh, co-workers and others so that they can improve their circumstances in life. That's what we're congressionally ma mandated to do. And you're the but, only you know, one, you know, just the, the NLRB is the only one that does that. You know, the, the Labor Department, uh, is all about government intervention on behalf of workers, which is a form of worker power. Yeah. You're the only ones who are focused on collective action to build worker power with workers bringing the power to the table. Yeah. Now, you intervene to protect their rights, but it's about them. That's right. I mean, but, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, because we are a pro-worker statute, I mean, the, the statute was enacted in 1935 by Congress. Why? During the Great Depression, right? 
because employees lacked channels of communication to engage with their employers to improve their work-life circumstances. And because they lacked those channels of communication, there was, there was a lot of industrial instability. There was a lot of labor unrest. There were wildcat strikes and the like, and it was affecting the failing economy. And so the notion was, Congress said, we need to level the playing field between employees and their employers and give employees the right to collectively bargain through freely chosen representatives and to engage with one another to improve that, their circumstance. And the idea was that those workers would then make gains through bargaining, which would then make them better consumers and help the economy. So, you know, I we I always hear this, you know, the talk of, you know, when 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 there's a de democratic president in the White House, the board swings pro union. And when, you know, there's a Republican in the White House, it swings pro-employer. And I think if more people focused on our, you know, those that are in politically appointed Senate-confirmed positions, focused on the notion of we are pro-worker. We are here to empower workers. We are here to promote workers and ensure that they are able to communicate with their employers because that's how you minimize industrial instability and workplace conflict when labor and management actually engage together in productive dialogue. Right. And it's also how you grow the economy, right? If you put exactly. money in workers' pockets and give workers not just consumption power, but actual power, the economy is better off. You have a stronger economy and a stronger democracy. Um, Absolutely. So there are so many labor law issues I want to talk about with you, but but I want to start with a question that draws on some data, and I think they're data that you're very well familiar with, uh, and here they are, just for our audience's benefit. So from 2021 to 2022, the number of petitions filed with the NLRB by workers who wanted a union representation election increased 53%. In the first six months of 2023, that number increased 14% when compared with the first six months of 2022. So the growth has continued. From 2021 to 2022, the number of unfair labor practice charges filed with the board increased 19% first six months of this year, a 16% increase over the first six months of last year. The growth continues. There was an analysis done by a very good reporter named Parker Purifoy for Bloomberg and in the first half of he found that in the first half of 2023, more than 58,000 workers were organized into unions through NLRB administered union elections, which is 10,000 more than during the first half of 2022. And that's the, according to Bloomberg, that's the second highest first half organizing total since 2000. What should those numbers tell us? about union organizing, about worker activism, and about labor relations in 2023 in the United States? Yeah, I, you know, listen, this is how um, I look at this. Um, whether it's right or wrong, I, I don't know. But I think we all struggled through the years of the pandemic. But, but you know, we had losses, we had challenges. But I think the one of the positives that came out of the pandemic was that workers woke up and spoke up about the value that they add to their employers' operations. And as a result, I think that they're organizing. And we at the agency are seeing um, many more workers, as you've just described, Seth, uh, throughout the country that are learning of their rights, because if they don't know their rights, they can't exercise them, and then exercising them to organize and be heard. And we've seen um, over the course of my two years back at the agency, a surge of underserved, underrepresented, vulnerable communities, many people of color, um, really elevating their voices and seeking a seat at the bargaining table. Because, you know, it's, it's one thing to speak up, it's another thing to actually take action um, and get results that you want. And, and we're seeing, and, and you, you, you hear about it publicly as well, you're seeing workers elevate 
their voices and seeking a seat at the bargaining table, both through traditional labor organizations and through homegrown ones. And as far as my agency is concerned, it doesn't matter, right? What matters is that workers at, at McDonald's and Starbucks and Amazon and Trader Joe's and Home Foods, Whole, Whole, Home Depot, Whole Foods, whatever it is, that they feel empowered to engage with their employers about substandard wages and working conditions, about health and safety, which is huge, about inequitable treatment and lack of opportunities. And, you know, and in fact, we are litigating cases involving social, racial, and economic justice advocacy that employees are engaged in, which obviously, like Black Lives Matter protests, obviously there's a broader societal interest, but there's also a connection to the way they are being treated within their own workplaces. And so I think my agency in particular is uniquely situated to help these workers as they seize an opportunities to level the playing field with their employers. And that's what Congress sought when they enacted the rights uh, for workers to collectively bargain and associate with one another to improve their working lives. And 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 I also, you mentioned President Biden, and I, I do have to say, I, I, I think it's imperative that we take advantage of this empowering climate. We have a president who's repeatedly talked correctly, I believe, about the importance of labor, we have ongoing organizing efforts, the likes of I've, that I've never seen in my entire career at the agency. Uh, and, and we're dealing with a new generation of workers and they are, are our future. And so I just think it's, it's um, a moment that we really need to um, seize and, and help workers um, to ensure that their their voices are being heard and their issues are being addressed in a positive way. Yeah, let me just say, if if President Biden were here, he as he often did during these speeches, where he would talk about the difference between talking about labor and then he'd lean into the microphone and say union, right, and get a big round of applause exactly. from whoever was there. So, um, so I, you're not just sort of helping and servicing those workers. You're playing a leadership role in shaping the law, and I have some specific issues that I want to talk to you about. I sure. the list is way too long because your list, your list is very very long of the precedents you want to see overturned. But I, I, you know, the board has acted in a number of different areas, mm -hmm. and um, uh, in a lot of cases, based on efforts that you have made as the general counsel through memoranda to your field staff, essentially saying the law is wrong or the law is a little stilted over here. We want to take the position that something different is true, something that is more worker protective, that is better to enforce the statute, that is a more accurate reading of what Congress intended. We're gonna take a different position. And in some cases, the board has acted on what you've uh, on what you've urged in in some cases they have I would say I don't think you've been outright rejected yet by the board but there are some where they haven't acted yet there are still some things on there on their docket and you've got some time left in your term so uh, again I don't want to I don't want to get you into particular cases or get you into a discussion about particular topics where the board has already ruled I'll get to some where the board has not ruled mm -hmm. what's your sense of the progress on the project of rejuvenating the law and understanding the law in a clearer way so that it is as fully protective of workers' right to organize and to collectively bargain as it needs to be? So I think um, that the board has done a good job. I mean, the agency certainly, I, I will, let me just say one thing in case folks, your audience may not be aware of this. And that is um, when we find the regional offices of which we have 50 all around the country and they uh, investigate the cases and ultimately make determinations in the first instance, whether or not there's been a violation of the act. In about 40% of all cases that are filed with us, and they have to be filed with us because we don't have any independent investigatory authority, which is something else that folks need to know. 
Um, in about 40% of those cases, the regional directors will find merit in the first instance. And of all of those meritorious cases, 95% or so are settled with the regional offices. And so we are getting, without, you know, litigating them through the through an ALJ, without litigating them at the board, without perhaps going into court if there's, you know, a, a need for to, to to get compliance or enforcement. But but um workers violations of workers' rights are being remedied at very promptly by our regional offices in the first instance. So, you know, I just want to give a shout out to our regions because they are doing a tremendous amount of work with many fewer resources than than they had even when I was here before um, before I left during the Trump years. I mean, they they really have uh, there was not a lot of backfilling going on and we don't have uh, 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 as much staff certainly as we as we did before. So so they're really doing yeoman's work, uh, taking on a tremendous caseload with uh, with less staff, but they're still remedying violations quickly. And the settlement rate is still at 95%, and it has been at the 95%. So, you know, as I said, they are tremendously committed individuals and, and are doing everything they can. So it means those on the front lines that are dealing with workers on a daily basis are really doing the bulk of the agency work. And these, you know, you mentioned the cases where I've sought to change precedent, which I just thought wasn't truly effectuating our mission and wasn't comporting with our congressional mandate. I think that the board has made gains. I mean, I've asked them to reconsider precedent that went beyond the Trump years, such as um, those related to disincentivizing employers from misbehaving and abusing our processes uh, in order to circumvent the free choice of a majority of employees who designate a union to represent them. Um, I'm asking the board and the and the board just issued a decision about that. Um, the I've asked the board and they have not yet taken this up, but you know, organizing is just the first step, right? You can, organized, you can get majority support, you can seek a voluntary recognition or go to an election. Uh, but once the union is either recognized or certified as the bargaining rep, then the hard work starts, right? Then you're negotiating for a collective bargaining agreement that's going to inure to the benefit of the workers and inure to the benefit of the employer's operations. And, and, and this is and this is what you're about to get into. The place you're going now is one of the single biggest frustrations for folks in labor. And I think I would argue that what the issue that you're getting into right now, which is the employer's refusal to bargain in good faith is a serious threat to the rule of law in our country. But let me let you go ahead and talk about it. Yeah, well, no, you're right. I mean, it's to say, I mean, that is we are about promoting collective bargaining. And, you know, when a, when an employer refuses to recognize and bargain with either a certified or a designated um, collective bar union, that's that's um, going to negotiate, has been chosen to negotiate on behalf of the workers in that particular workforce. Um, you know, that right now the law is such that I think it in actually incentivizes bad behavior by employers because there's no incentive for them to bargain in good faith when, if they abuse our processes and delay the situation, it a undermines support of the union because when you unfortunately you go through the board, the board issues a decision, then it's appealed. You go through it's in a quote a test of cert case, right? A test of certification case. The board typically quickly resolves it, but then it's appealed to a circuit court. Then the circuit court has to weigh in and make a determination, and that could take a year or two or longer. And so what happens is. Uh, workers who have designated or selected a union to represent them cannot have that those representational efforts show provide them with any gains 
because the their their employer has refused to bargain for a year, two years, or longer until a court has made a determination. And so what happens is, and then once the court has made a, a determination, or the board for that matter, the remedy is a prospective bargaining order. Right. So there's no and even if even if the employer is found to have violated their duty to bargain in good faith, the remedy is an order to go bargain in good faith. Exactly. There, and and so the employer basically gets away with not bargaining in good faith because they, they don't it's not even a slap on the hand. It's sort of a weak admonishment. And there's no the sense out in the world and the sense even among labor law professors like myself is there's no reason to bargain in good faith if you never wanted the union in the first place. So that's why so many unions don't get first contracts. Okay. So tell us the answer, tell us the solution. Right. But I mean, you know, it's even, it's even worse than unions not getting a first contract. It is if you delay it sufficiently and you undermine union support during that, that time period. And frankly, you also undermine confidence in the government who in many cases have certified that union right so um you then create and not you employer create an opportunity for yourself to actually have people decertify the union because they're like hey why do we need nothing's happened in the two years why are why should we be paying union dues or why should why should we continue with this union when they've done nothing for us? The only reason why they've done nothing for you is because your employer refuses to bargain with them. But, right. you know, it's hard to get that message across to, to workers sometimes who are just frustrated. Um, so my um, solution is that I think that um, that employers should be required to pay, compensate all workers for the lost opportunity to make gains in bargaining at the time that they were required to bargain with the union, which was when they initially either recognized or were certified. And in that way, and this is something that, you know, other like the Ontario Labor Relations Board, California uh, Ag Board, these are um, there are ways to determine comparators, right? Using a, another collective bargaining agreement in the same geographic area with the same classification of workers where a high road employer actually negotiated a, a CBA, a collective bargaining agreement with a union um, and use that as a comparator to say, hey, if if this bad acting employer would have bargained at the time that they should have, this is the sort of collective bargaining agreement with these wage rates and these benefits that that um, those workers got, but the workers in the, in the case of the bad employer didn't get. And so I think that I think if you can, um, and and the law allows for this. I briefed this before the right, board. I hope that they is, take it up. Right, and this is uh, this is in the law. This particular interpretation of the concept is not in the law, but make whole relief is what remedies are supposed to be under the National Labor Relations Act. And what you're describing is making workers whole for a failure to bargain in good faith. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the board deals with that issue. I'm I'm. I'm hopeful. I'm not sure that that will solve all of the problems with the failure to bargain in good faith, but certainly it'll begin to impose some positive cost on some of these name brand companies out there that are blatantly violating the law. And I think doing real damage to our American justice system by doing that, they are just spitting in the face of the law, which is harmful, not just in the labor context, not just to workers who want to organize a union, but to all of us who think that we should be a nation of laws, not a nation of just men and women and uh, uh, people, I should say. Okay, I've held off long enough. I've got to get into some specific legal issues with you. And uh, And I think these are issues that have not yet been decided by the board, but if you don't want to take them on, that's perfectly okay. Uh, and I'm going to ask, let me start by asking you a question that I get asked all the time. So maybe this will solve my problem of being asked about this all the time. So you you have taken the position that employers violate the act when they tell their employees 
that they are not employees, that they're independent contractors, that the workers are independent contractors. Uh, in other words, misclassification of employees is an independent violation right. of labor law. Tell us why that's so. And and is this case, uh, uh, are you finding cases out there? Are you finding misclassification cases out there? So I'll tell you, yes, we have a case now in the pipeline about that. But, but let me, um, so let me just kind of give your audience a little bit of context. It, if you're an employee, if you're classified as an employee, you have the full protections of the NLRA as well as other worker protection statutes. And if you are classified as something else, like an independent contractor, let's say, who is specifically excluded, you know, independent contractors specifically right. excluded from our statutory coverage, then you have no legal protection. So misclassifying employees has really dire consequences for workers. And I think it, it really has to stop. So I pursued an independent violation of the statute if, if or I'm pursuing uh, an independent violation of the statute. If, a, if an employer misleads employees, whether, whether they're players at academic institutions, whether they're gig workers or other workers who are mislabeled as independent contractors, if an employer misleads them by word or by deed into believing that they are not employees, when they are, basically the employer is saying, you have no statutory protections. And that chills workers from engaging in the collective mm. action that they're entitled to, to improve their working or playing conditions, which I consider working conditions, because, because they believe that exercising their right to engage in collective action is futile or, or could lead to adverse action without any recourse, right? They can't come to the agency because they feel they don't right. have protection. So I will tell you that the board did issue, now they did not find in that, in 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 this particular case, they, they it, it, the Atlantic Opera case, which I don't know if you were gonna talk about or not, but but the Atlantic Opera case talked, uh, uh, the, the board asked for briefs on the notion of employee right. versus independent contractor status. And I filed a brief, as did DOJ Antitrust, and which was really important because, you know, I, we uh, certainly I look at it, and I think you do too. I mean, you know, we're looking at things through a labor and employment lens. I mean, you know, they're they're looking at it through an anti-competitive behavior lens, right? So their brief really brought a different and important and persuasive perspective uh, because there's a carve out under antitrust statutes for employees organizing, but those that aren't considered employees could be liable for engaging any in any sort of collective action that may be deemed to be anti-competitive. So under antitrust law, they would be in violation. There are actually cases in which uh, doctors and others have been held in violation of antitrust law because it's an anti-competitive practice to come together and, for example, set wages, which is price fixing under antitrust law. Right. Absolutely right. So, so the board actually did issue that Atlantic Opera decision agreeing with me and reverted back to a test which includes, uh, you know, looking at employee status from the from uh, and considering the ten common law factors with no one factor being a super factor or dispositive of, of employee status. So that was great. But the board has not yet, we tried this once before when I was deputy general counsel to have the board find an independent violation of a misclassification. The board did not do it then. I think it was back in 2017, I wanna say. But we're trying again and, and we'll see if we're successful uh, this time around. Okay, but you skated over the part of that answer that is my best hope and your best hope of getting on ESPN. And that is that the theory that you just laid out applies arguably to workers in the online platform economy, the gig economy, certainly in construction and healthcare and other industries where there is rife misclassification. But it also applies to student athletes. You've taken the position that student athletes can be, it depends on whether they meet the test, but they can be employees under the act. So here's my shot at ESPN. Let's see if it works. Are you saying that the Duke basketball team and the 
uh, Clemson football team can organize unions and go out on strike during bowl week? So, so this is what I will say. Um, so let's just, let me just go back again to basic principles, sure. right? The, someone's considered an employee not based upon any sort of label that an employer may give it, which includes, I say players at academic institutions, I don't like saying student athletes, but at any rate, it's not determined by what any, the employer, you know, whether it's a private sector institution, I have to say, because those are the only ones right. I have jurisdiction over. So, right. um, but, but, um, but it's based on the law and the language, of course, as I've said before, our statute has to be broadly construed. Our statute does not specifically exclude students or athletes. Right. The word student, right. I, 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 my understanding, I've, I, let me just say, I used to teach labor law. I've looked at the statute closely. I don't believe the word student even appears in the statute. No. So that's a made up distinction that sadly some predecessor boards have treated as being a meaningful distinction. It doesn't exist in the statute. Right. And, and you know, under the, as I mentioned, you know, the common law test, an employee is one who performs services for an institution and that institution has control or the right of control over significant aspects of their daily lives. So, you know, depending upon the facts of a particular case and how much the NCAA or the school, private sector school, is has control over the, the daily lives of these players is going to, as far as I'm concerned, determine whether or not they're employees. And I will say that, you know, compensation bolsters employee status, but it's not dispositive. Profit making is not dispositive. So if you control the number of practices, their training, the competition hours they put in, what classes they can take and when, you know, the more that you are controlling the aspects of their daily lives and taking it away from academics, frankly, um, the more you are treating them as employees and, you know, you should be providing them with the benefits and the equal opportunities that, that they deserve. Okay, ESPN, are you listening? We're going to see. We're going to find out. <laughs> By the way, I, 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 to make the point about it being only private sector schools, I had to pick out Clemson because in the top 10, everybody else is a public, all the other schools in the top 10 are public institutions. So uh, it may or may not apply there. Although you can imagine some states, maybe not all states, following suit if the NLRB were to conclude that student athletes are employees under the law. I'm not sure everybody is going to do that. And it's kind of a, it's a touchy issue. Okay. Well, um, and certainly I, public, public sector, uh, just to say public sector institutions can always voluntarily recognize right. Um, unions, right? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, competition and antitrust law. Uh, and uh, you have uh, you have a memorandum of understanding with the Federal Trade Commission. You, you have you've had entered into memorandum of understanding with a lot of agencies, the Labor Department and EEOC and 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 others. And let me say, I used to say this all the time to people in government, and that you know because they'd want to do a big press release because there was a memorandum of understanding between the NLRB and the Labor Department. I'd always say, no one in the real world cares that two government agencies are speaking with one another. No one cares about that. It's the actions that they take. But you actually are taking action on a very important area in cooperation with the Federal Trade Commission, or at least in parallel with the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah. They are working on a regulation that would effectively ban non-compete agreements, agreements in which, again, there's something you know, but just for our audience's sake, where an employer prohibits their employees from working for a competitor employer after that employee has had their employment terminated for whatever reason that employment has been terminated. It's called a non-compete agreement. The loyal viewers of this blog know that we've done, a, uh, I've written an, a, a post about this and we had a, a blog cast about this early on uh, with Elizabeth Wilkins from uh, the Federal Trade Commission. It was very, very, very good. So help, help uh, our viewers to understand why non-compete agreements are a labor law issue because you've taken the position that non-compete agreements violate the act. Yes. 
And so I, the anti-competitive aspect of them, I think, is obvious, and that's why the FTC is going to act on it. But help us to understand why it's also a labor law issue. I certainly, and let me just say, you know, you're right. You know, I've ha- I, I, we've had partnership. The agencies had partnerships with other worker protection agencies for 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 quite a while. Um, but the new partnerships that um, we've developed since I've gotten back with FTC, with DOJ Antitrust, and and CFPB are really crucial because, as I was saying earlier, when I was talking about the Atlantic Opera case and how we are, you know, how how really um, persuasive I felt that that their brief, the, the uh, DOJ antitrust brief was, um, it be, it was because they're looking at it from a different lens, right? And we, you know, when you're making a decision about workers' lives, you've got to be looking at this like holistically, in my opinion. And so, um, you know, and despite the fact that we're we're viewing things from different lenses, our goals are the same. Our goals, whether it's whether it's the NLRB or whether it's the FTC, we want to stop unfair and deceptive practices. We want to stop misclassification. We want to stop employment models and structures that that create vertical constraints on competition that affects workers who are also consumers, right? And affects the broader community. So, you know, as you mentioned, this this at the when it comes to non-competes in particular. At the heart of the act's purposes is the equalization of bargaining power between employers and employees. Mm. And non-compete provisions chill virtually all types of protected activity in the workplaces. In the workplaces, not only of the employer, but of its competitors. Because, you know, if you are subject to, if you, uh, Jane Doe are subject to a non-compete agreement and you leave your employee, you can't work anywhere near the geographic area typically of the or in the same field as the place that you just left. So you're so you don't get to engage with your former colleagues who may mm. also have left. So it scatters former employees who now don't have any sort of relation. You know, they had a relationship when they all worked together, but now they're scattered to scattered to the four winds. So it kind of precludes that, you know, sort of uh, solidarity. Um, You increase the economic cost to employees who are unlawfully discharged for engaging in protected activity because now they have to go God knows where to try to find a job. And in the meantime, they're, you know, not not having any income. And you importantly undermine employees' abilities to replace lost income in the context of strikes, lockouts, or other labor disputes. Mm. Because they again have nowhere to go to try to supplement the income that they're losing. So in addition to all of that, these provisions chill the um, workers' rights to concertedly threaten to resign in order to improve some working conditions, to carry out those threats, because where are they going to go? It's an empty threat if they can't really go anywhere. Um, And it prevents them from even soliciting employees to kind of act concertedly with them in threatening to or actually carrying out the threat to resign. So I think in many ways, uh, it's definitely a labor issue. And it's, I believe, you know, I mean, certainly, and I've said this um, before, there may be circumstances where some limited non-compete provisions are necessary, you know, to protect intellectual property or trade secrets or something like that. But you know, as well as I said, you know, these you have these low wage or middle wage workers being subject to these non-compete agreements for no reason other than basically forcing them to stay where they are right. and just accept whatever terms and conditions are offered to them because they really have no opportunities to go elsewhere, um, you know, because they can't they're 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 at least typically subject to these non-compete agreements for like two years or so. Yeah, what is what what is so fascinating about that explanation and so many of the explanations you've given us about uh, to my in, my, in response to my questions today is 
the the comprehensive view that you have of worker power and what it requires in order for workers to be able to exercise their power in an effective way and what the goal of the exercise of that power is. It's not power for its own sake, it's power for workers to be able to improve the quality of their lives. So if you take away the ability to resign en masse, well, that's something that workers might be able to use to squeeze a little bit of additional money out of their employer or solve a safety and health challenge in the workplace, a ha you know, address a hazard, a deadly hazard in the workplace. And that, I think, is what is most intriguing to me about your stewardship with the general counsel's office and the, and the staff of the NLRB is that you have a very sophisticated and comprehensive understanding of worker power and how it can be used and how the statute intended that it would be used and what the purposes of the statute is. So I really, I really, really appreciate that. I, as I said to you at the, before we got started, I have about 14 pages of notes, but I'm not gonna try and get you through everything. I'm gonna ask my final question now, and it's a big open-ended question. Take it wherever uh, you wanna take it. Um, uh, so when you have finished your career at the NLRB, uh, which I hope is not soon. Uh, let's. I'm, I'm rooting for at least six more years, maybe 14 more years, if they can persuade you to stay. Uh, but when you have finished your career as the general counsel of the NLRB, how will we know if Jennifer Abruzzo has been a successful general counsel? What What is your measure of success for your time at the NLRB? Uh, well, that's a great question. I, I would say, um, and, you know, certainly my, you know, you don't do this, I don't do this in a vacuum, and I certainly don't do this by myself, and it really is a team effort. So I think... But you're the you leader. Wait a minute. I'm not going to let you off that easy. You're <laughs> the leader. You are the leader. You're the legal leader. You're the intellectual leader. You're the organization. People don't really understand this. You are the organizational leader of all of those field staff yeah. folks out there. Uh, you know, there's another leader, the chair of the board, who's fantastic and a great friend, and I think she's done a wonderful job. But you're the leader, so I, I, yeah. I appreciate your humility and your support for your staff, and they're all wonderful and mission focused. But I, I want to know. Because, you know, someday you and I are both going to be retired and we'll be sitting on a beach in Maine or we'll be sitting on a beach in Delaware where whoever wins and the coin flip about whose summer governs. <laughs> and when you look back, yeah. how will you know whether you succeeded? And because that's the kind of thought that can drive the way you do your job. And I'm wondering if you have that thought in your mind. Yeah, I mean, of course you know, the main goal is always to promote collective bargaining and to encourage uh, workers to speak up about their issues. And I, whether whether it's through unions or not, frankly, right, we protect union activity and we protect, protect a concerted activity. And so I would love to see whenever I leave here that you know, and probably read about it in the paper at that point or see it on the news where we are seeing workers speaking up and their issues being addressed, you know, that we are promoting productive labor management dialogue. And I think that that's something that is, is, is key, frankly. I mean, you know, look, workers are not alone. There is strength in numbers. And with the challenges associated with the pandemic and beyond, it seems to me that if we continue to encourage labor management relations in that are um, undertaken in a very productive manner, whether it's with regard to safety and health or scheduling or compensation or other benefits or whatever it is that workers care about, I think that's a crucial step towards workplace stability. And when, when, workers feel empowered to speak up and out like they are now, and I hope they continue to do it. And I hope that employers actually are listening and are, I would, I, you know, my, the, the great thing would be if employers kind of stop fighting their workers in terms of their choices to get representation or to speak up on their own, but actually address the issues, then, as I said earlier, workplace conflict 
diminishes workers and their families, communities, the employer's operations, they all will flourish. And, and that's, that's a win-win for everybody. So, I mean, the other thing that I would say is that I hope, so that's like broadly speaking that I, I hope if nothing else, you know, workers feel empowered to speak up. Businesses hopefully will come on board to, to, to know that addressing the issues of import is the best way for them to proceed as well. Um, and, and that's just gonna benefit our economy, frankly. Um, and I will also say, I do hope that politically appointed Senate confirmed individuals that are running agencies are really taking their um, responsibilities seriously and really understanding what their congressional mandate is and ensuring that we're not only comporting with it, but we are doing all that we can looking at and considering the industrial realities of the workplace today compared to that in 1935, for example, for, for, for my statute. Um, and just making sure that we're doing the best we can for workers out there each and every day. So uh, I think that's what I would say. I, I listen, I, one final thing, Seth, I will say to you, I thank you um, for reaching out to me. And because um, I think it's really crucial that we educate as many workers we can about their statutory rights to speak up and engage together to seek positive change. Um, and that there's an agency out there that will protect those rights and, and enforce of the statute and remedy violations. Um, because if you don't know your rights, then you're not gonna exercise them. And you know, with knowledge comes power. So uh, I, I really I, appreciate that. Well, I really appreciate your being willing to take the time to educate our audience and to, and to talk with us here at the Power at Work blog. I will, I, I will close with this. Um, I think Jennifer Abruzzo has already been a success because you have played a leadership role in a resurgence of worker activism, worker militancy, worker organizing around the country. We're seeing workers making demands at the collective bargaining table because they know that they have an agency that will defend their rights, that will fight to protect them when they take the risk of organizing a union, take the risk of challenging their employer, take the risk of demanding more for their families and their communities, as you said. And and that, and let me just say, the name that is on everybody's lips, um, I think even more maybe than uh, Joe Biden is Jennifer Abruzzo. And so on their behalf, I'll say thank you. In addition to thanking you for being with us today, Jennifer, you're terrific, really great to see you. Thank you, Seth. It's great to see you too. Take care. Thank you. Well, I hope you felt that was everything I promised it would be. Jennifer Abruzzo, the NLRB General Counsel, just terrific. Uh, and we have some more terrific interviews coming your way. Uh, the only way you're going to find out about them, you know, we don't buy Super Bowl television ads. I mean, we're a tiny little blog. We're not, you know, running streamer ads on, on the big uh, sites on the web. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're just trying to get by here and we're trying to get by with your help. Uh, word of mouth, retweeting us, if that's even what we call it after they change the name of that freaking site. Um, you know, connecting with us, sharing stuff, reposting what we put on LinkedIn, other things. We need your help to make people aware of this Power at Work blog. So please come back and subscribe yourself to the Power at Work blog right on the Power at Work blog homepage. You can click on the subscribe link, just give us your email. We will send you a newsletter. We'll send you the weekly download, which is a collection of more than two dozen stories, studies, articles, opinion pieces, videos, other things that you'll find on the web about worker power, worker organizing and unions, just a way to keep up with what's going on in, in labor world. Uh, and uh, in addition to subscribing, please follow us on social media at Power Work Blog on Twitter, at Power Work Blog on Threads, at Power Work Blog on Instagram. Uh, follow us on LinkedIn, the Power at Work page. Follow us on Facebook. And you'll see a lot of this content there, and you will also be able to connect with us. And if you have comments, if you have things that you want to tell us, send a direct message after you followed us, after you've connected with us. Send a direct message through one of those social media channels. 
We're dying to hear from you. We'd love to hear your ideas. We have a lot of great content that's getting ready to come out. Uh, some more interviews with very high-profile people in a labor world. Uh, some interviews about important topics like child care and organizing. Just please, please stay connected to us. Come back here to the Power at Work blog often. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this broadcast. Thanks again to our friends at Levy Ratner for sponsoring this uh, broadcast. We really appreciate them. If you would like to sponsor a uh, Power at Work broadcast or any of the items on the Power at Work blog, please do get in touch with us. You can send an email to me. Uh, directly at Northeastern University, or you can contact us through all those social media channels that I mentioned. Thanks a lot for watching. We'll see you right here on the blog again very soon.